Happy New Year, Theo 102. We are so happy to be back. Jen, I need to be. Hi, uh, hi. Happy New Year. Happy right, New Dr. Year, Duke. everybody. Great to see you. Yeah, we can clap. Should we just clap? Let's yeah. just clap. Dr. Payne, everybody. Dr. Leah Payne. Yes, Clapping. Dr. Doke. Okay, so Dr. Doke, did you make any New Year's resolutions? Oh, I always make New Year's resolutions. What were they? I made like 50 New Year's resolutions. Oh, name one. Uh, I can't remember what any of them are. Oh, there was a particular, yeah. I, <laughs> so they're done now. <laughs> yeah, they, they were really great resolutions. They were really fantastic. For like two weeks. Yeah, that's right. What about you? Do you make resolutions? Uh, yeah, I almost never keep them. One is to go to bed early. We'll see. What's a resolution you never keep? Oh, I, I almost never. Go to bed early? Well, I never, like, finish any of my resolutions. Oh. Like around Valentine's Day, it's, you know, yeah. usually. That's encouraging. Yeah, it is. All right, Happy New Year. I'm still getting used to the fact that it's 2020. I wrote 2018 on a check the other day. I think I'm stuck. I'm stuck in the past. You <laughs> You're know what I mean? retro. I'm yes. having struggles. Yes. Hey, we're, we're so happy to welcome you back to the spring semester. This is Theo 102 now, not Theo 101. So it's an entirely new class, although we're rolling on with many of the same things that we did in the fall. And we just want to cue you into three quick things especially encouraging you to check your email. We made a video for you um, to kind of help you with this a little bit longer, but we just want to highlight a couple of the things from the video and the email, so check your email. Yes, one is that, did everybody get the message that we have a new book that we are going to be reading this semester? Yes, it, is, it is called Simply Jesus by a very famous New Testament scholar, a guy named N.T. Wright. We will be reading that uh, all semester long, so you can check the website and the syllabus for your specific reading assignments. So Simply Jesus, grab that as soon as possible. If you're not able to get it from the bookstore, we trust that you know how to get things, okay? But uh, obtain that um, fast, like this, get, get on that this week, okay? Does anyone already have it? Did anyone go out of their way? Oh my gosh. Uh, overachievers, oh. I love it. All right, another thing that we're going to be doing is we're gonna be amping up. We are going to take the reaction papers to the, a little bit of an, a next level. They were yes. here, they're going here now. Yes, um, we think that y'all can handle it because you are now second semester Theo students. Oh yeah, they can handle and it. And so uh, expect a little bit more challenging questions and a little bit more um, specific grading to be done yeah, on your Theo. They're gonna paper. get more specific. So whereas in the fall sometimes you could be like, yeah, God and me, and I know, it's so weird, you know? And that it's was not, like a, not and that, that, was, anybody a, that, did that was a five out of five. We were just trying to get you used to things, but that's not gonna be that great anymore. That's gonna be a two <laughs> out of five, so that's not gonna count. I like that that so. reflection had a particular like voice for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm gonna speak for the rest of the day in that voice. Yeah. Oh, great, it's gonna be a great moment. Me and God, I don't know. <laughs> so, just to let you know, um, remind you, you may consult your notes when we ask these questions. Yeah, so, so feel free to take, take specific notes. notes. You can use your notes. You cannot use other people, but you can use your notes. Yes. So taking specific notes is totally encouraged and might help you on those reaction papers. And we want to introduce somebody to you who will be taking on a new role in Theo 102. Um, we are calling him the academic czar of, uh, of Theo 102. Please give a round of applause for Anderson Campbell. Dr. Anderson Campbell is one of the teaching Dr. team. Dr. Anderson Campbell. Dr. Campbell is one of the faculty members in the College of Christian Studies, and he's a professor of Christian ministries, wonderful human being. He's going to deal with grades, and any question you have dealing with grades, reaction papers, things like that, he's in charge. He's the czar. We support him. And so, Dr. Campbell, thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Campbell.
Hey, All I'm right. actually, okay, so I'm the speaker today and yeah. I'm up here, so if you're gonna introduce you me, get back there. I'm gonna go to the back of the thing. Okay, okay now I'm the only because one. Because that's an important ritual to do Shh. that. I'm the only one with the microphone now. You can't sorta. stop her. <laughs> all right. So I am very pleased to introduce Dr. Brian Doak to you all. Uh, Dr. Brian R. Doak, no one has successfully guessed his middle name yet. Oh, please. Shh. Yes. Okay. You can guess. You can guess on Friday. Um, and uh, Dr. Doak is uh, the, the author of numerous very fancy academic books. His most recent book is called Heroic Bodies in Ancient Israel on Oxford University Press. He went to Harvard University, heard of it. And uh, he is also a podcaster. He co-hosts a podcast on religion and pop culture. And he very recently got a dog named a puppy named Mookie, who he loves dearly. Um, so in a moment, we're going to, to welcome him out here. Um, but before we do, it is time for us to recite the creed. Uh, we are adding, is he out there? Okay, um, we are adding a line to the creed. Do you know what it is today? It is suffered under Pontius Pilate. Yes, okay, so we're gonna read it together. I'm a little nervous about it because it's been a while since I've recited the creed publicly. So will you please join me in reciting the creed? I believe in God, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was spirit, born of a virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Oh my goodness, y'all! Yes, excellent. Okay, without further ado, please welcome Dr. Brian Doak. I am going to suffer badly and I'm going to die. Jesus said this to his disciples in the book of Mark at a particularly harrowing point in that gospel. The book of Mark is, is a really punchy short gospel in which Jesus takes his disciples on a journey of understanding and they are not willing to understand. He says to them, I'm gonna suffer badly and I'm gonna die. And the lead disciple named Peter takes him aside, takes aside the son of God and says, no, 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 you don't understand. And basically like choose out Jesus, the son of God. <laughs> And uh, no, you're not going to suffer. That's not what you do. And Jesus looks at Peter. Can you imagine hearing this from Jesus? Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. That's how strongly Jesus reacted to this denial that he would have to suffer and die. And the book of Mark tells this harrowing tale of Jesus' suffering. He's betrayed by one of his friends, Judas. He's handed over and he's beaten. He's tortured. He's hung on a cross, a Roman instrument of execution, kind of like a big wooden tee where you're basically nailed through your body in order to bleed to death, publicly, like a lynching, like a shame spectacle, probably naked, and his mom and his some of his family members watch this happen. And from the cross in Mark, particularly stunning in Mark, Mark has Jesus' last words as follows. Jesus cries out in his native language. He says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why did you leave me behind? Why did you forget me? Can you imagine Jesus saying that? Like that when, I first, when I first really heard that phrase or understood it, I was taking a college class. I was just like you, and I was in college, and I was taking a class in the book of Mark, 
and, and, and the professor was talking about this, and I just thought, what can Jesus possibly mean by saying that? How can God say this to God? Like, is God saying, how do you forget me to God? Is it a play act? Is it fake? Turns out that's actually a quote from a psalm. Jesus is quoting the Bible from the cross in a psalm, Psalm 22, wherein the speaker opens with that exact line. Is the brutal, brutal torture and lynching of an innocent man like Jesus not one of the worst kinds of evil you can think of in this world? And this kind of thing still happens in our world today. How can God allow evil like that to actually happen at all? And if I'm to follow Jesus, I wonder, I'm suddenly implicated, how much am I going to have to suffer? How should I respond? There's so much we can say about Jesus and his suffering and his death, and we're going to save some of this for next week, too, when our creedal phrase is, was crucified, died, and was buried. So please, I encourage you to think of this as like something of a two-part topic. Today, though, I want to talk with you about four things, okay? Number one, I want to say a little bit about Pontius Pilate, his role, who is Pontius Pilate. I want to talk about some deep and dark philosophical and theological problems regarding evil and suffering and God and what that all means together. I want to offer a few provocative little sketches of some of the ways Christians have dealt with this deep, dark, hard problem of suffering and the response to it. And I want to end by affirming what I think all Christians must believe about God in, in God's relation to suffering. Does that make sense, that little roadmap? So we'll go back over all that, okay? Okay, number one, what is Pontius Pilate doing in the creed? I mean, our phrase for this week, suffering under Pontius Pilate, is strange to me because I thought the creed was about Jesus. I thought the creed was about God. Uh, what is this pagan Roman ruler, this governor of Judea, doing in the creed at all? We do have some direct archaeological evidence, by the way, for you history nerds, that Pontius Pilate was a real person. We have a stone inscription as well as some coins that attest to Pilate's existence as a Roman governor in this place and time. The Gospels themselves tell four different stories, but they all involve Pilate, involving Jesus' trial and suffering and crucifixion. And Pilate plays this weird role. He's such an ambiguous character. In Matthew 27, he presents Jesus to the crowd, and he doesn't know what to do, and so he takes a bowl of water. Just think of this as a symbol. And he washes his hands in front of everyone and says, I wash my hands of this guy. I wash my hands of this whole thing. Don't blame me. In John chapter 18, there's another scene. This is a super fascinating scene in which um, Pilate actually questions Jesus, and they have this little ambiguous back and forth. I wondered if we could dramatize this. Dr. Campbell, can we welcome Dr. Campbell to the stage? Dr. Campbell was a theater major, okay? Dr. Campbell's a theater major, and when he was in college, I was not. But we're going to do a very short, dramatic reading of this little interchange between Pilate and Jesus in John chapter 18. Can we do this? You okay with this? I'm okay with this. You've got the mic, and it's too late now. Okay. Yeah. So Pilate enters, uh, Pilate enters his headquarters, and he summons Jesus to him, and he begins to question him. Just a short little exchange. So are you the king of the Jews? Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? <laughs> I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. So, so you are a king. You say that I'm a king. For this I was born. And for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. What is truth? End scene. Okay. <laughs> Thank you.
such a strange scene between Pilate and Jesus. It's like, why is Jesus so cagey? Why won't he just tell Pilate who he is? It's almost as though he's unwilling to say certain things or make certain confessions in the wrong scenario or to the wrong people, or maybe even to people who have the wrong understanding or would not understand what's going on. I also wonder, too, about this line, what is truth? Maybe Pilate, um, you know, was engaging in some kind of Greco-Roman philosophical system that was popular during his time where people were suspicious of truth, just like we know that they are in our time as well. Christians have sometimes sneered at Pontius Pilate for this line, what is truth? I have to tell you just personally, spiritually, my reading of that line, I don't sneer at him at all. I see him as like a brother in faith in that moment. Like, he's, he's asking a legitimate question. What is truth? Maybe he even begins a faith journey from that simple question, if he asks it honestly. In fact, Christian tradition actually goes two ways with Pilate after the Bible, so none of this is in the Bible. In one Christian tradition, Pilate actually becomes a convert to Christianity. And he's kind of like redeemed and he follows, you know, the evidence in his experience and he becomes a Christian. In another tradition, however, he becomes a horrible villain for his role in Jesus' trial. And like Judas, he actually commits suicide. Maybe Pilate is something like a cipher for all of us in our response to Jesus, right? What are we going to choose? We have those same options that Pilate had in the tradition. Faith and unbelief. Life and death. Speaking of life and death... Since we're talking about suffering and death these first two weeks of the semester, it's a little dark, it's raining out, okay? The spring semester's not as fun as the fall. Let's just go there, okay? Let me risk offering you a hard thought for 11.15 in the morning. We're all gonna die. <laughs> You're gonna die. And I'm gonna die. And my parents are going to die. And my last remaining two grandparents are going to die. And everyone I love and know and care about is going to die. And that's true for you too. And that's true for all of us. The fact that we have to die, just even, even just that, and how horrible and painful death can be, just the principle of death, the idea that things pass away, the world is wearing away, that we cannot last, this right away introduces us, I think, introduces me to very hard questions of suffering right away. Could make you, you know, stare out of your window on a rainy afternoon. I've totally been there all Christmas break, okay? <laughs> I get it. I've not yet suffered as much as I know I will uh, in the years to come. All of you have different and varying experiences with suffering. I think we can bank on it, you know, with maybe a little bit of dread in our hearts, though, that the, 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 the real suffering that we're going to suffer is out ahead of us. We haven't yet gone through it. We're going to go there. I thought I'd tell you about a brief brush I had with a certain kind of suffering. It turns out it was a story that had a good ending. But it took me just right up to the edge of a certain kind of suffering that maybe we really start to worry about in life. The kind of suffering that gets us into what we might call the problem of evil. Just the fact that the world is so ruined and broken down that we fear it could destroy us. When I was in my graduate program, I was a stay-at-home dad to an infant for 18 months. Um, I was no hero. My wife had to keep working at her low-paying uh, job at that time because like, I made no money because I was a student, and she just had to go back to work. And so there I was with this like, 12-week-old infant. It's the hardest time of my life. But that wasn't the suffering. That was fine. We worked through it. We had to. Um, there was one day, very cold day, this is in Boston, so it's very cold winter, I had her bundled up. I thought maybe she was sick, I didn't know, but I thought we, we gotta get some fresh air, we gotta get out of here. My wife was working in our home office, aka our bedroom, sitting on the edge of her bed, like trying to type on a desk, you know, it was such a bad arrangement, we had such a bad apartment. And I took my, my oldest daughter, at that time, she was about one year old, her name, was, her name is Nova, and I was pushing her in the stroller, and I had her all bundled up, and we went over this like, bump in the sidewalk about 200 feet from our, our house where I always went over this bump and she always kind of like chuckled or I would look and I'd be like, ah, you know, like it's fun. And I looked at her this time and her face was purple. 
and I thought she was choking. And I rushed around to the front of the stroller, and I tried to, I tried to open her mouth. I thought something was in her mouth. I was, I was in, it was 10 out of 10. I was, I was panicking. I ripped her out of the stroller. I didn't know what to do. I was screaming. I put her under my arm, and I, I ran with her. I ran all the way back to our apartment. I kicked down the door. I was trying to ring the doorbell. My wife came out. She wasn't breathing. I gave her to my wife. I'm like, I don't, I was just screaming. My wife laid her down on the living room floor, and I called 911. First time I've called 911 in my life. I, I, I don't remember what I said. I remember screaming at them, like, why is this taking so long? I screamed at them on the phone, and this woman was so patient with me. She was like, everyone says that. Just, you know, just wait. They're coming. And they did come, and they came up, and they looked at her, and I was just standing there, and in this moment, I don't know if you've ever had a moment like this. I suddenly became self-aware, and I was like, this is what it feels like when your child dies. This is what you feel like as a parent when you're realizing it. And I, and I stood there and I thought that. And I thought this was happening. And one of the paramedics actually took this little needle thing, I don't know, it was like, and he pricked the bottom of her foot and she started to cry. Oh, it was the most beautiful cry I've ever heard. It was the greatest cry that has ever been cried in my heart as a father. Turned out she'd had what's called a febrile seizure. They're actually kind of common, relatively common. Um, and she never, had never stopped breathing, it just looked like that. And she had the seizure and her body kind of had to reset in this way. We spent a long night in the ER, tough day afterward, but you know what, she was okay. But I've wondered, <laughs> I've wondered in the aftermath of something like that. Because as a parent, man, you worry, I, the idea of a child dying, that's my greatest fear. I'll tell you right, right now, right to your face, that's my greatest suffering fear is that something would happen to my children. What would have happened if she had died that morning? to me, to my faith. When I, I won, I've wondered, like, would my wife and I have stayed together? Would we have been able to stay married even? Would I have lost my faith? Would I have given up completely on all of this? Would I have quit graduate school? That's one way to think about it, very personal kinds of things, death. There are also bigger ways you can think about this problem of evil. I resurrect here a comment that a student had written from, um, in reaction to one of the panels many, many weeks ago in the fall. I think this was back when the word father was the word. Do you remember that? Father Almighty. We didn't read this one in the moment, but I saved it because I thought, oh, I'm going to talk about the suffering and maybe we could use it, so here we go. We call God the Father, the student wrote. Parents make mistakes, though. Do you believe God has made mistakes? 9-11, Holocaust, ISIS, rape, murder, abuse. So the stakes are pretty high, right, when we think about this? I wanted to introduce you using this fancy marker board here, to a, a way that Christians have thought about the problem of, of suffering, indeed this problem of evil. It's a kind of a theological, philosophical thing, so get ready to feel feelings and have your mind working a little bit, okay? And this, th th this, this thing I'm about to show you hasn't just been used by Christians to think about evil, it's also been used by opponents of Christianity to like sort of challenge Christians to think harder about their core convictions and what they believe. So here we go. You can, you can, draw, you can draw this in your notebook, okay? Pretty sure you'll be able to see this in the back, but if not, if anyone draws on the board this semester, we'll always take a picture of it and put it up with the notes, so don't worry. You gotta start by drawing a triangle, okay? Triangle is the best Christian shape that you can have. You know, the Trinity and stuff like that, okay. This triangle contains three points, three things that Christians believe strongly to be true about the world, but these three things don't always play together really well at the same time. There's a question about whether you can have it all. Like, have you ever seen one of these college triangles? It's like, you can have two of these things, but not all three. Sleep, good grades, and friends. Pick two, okay? Pick two. You can sleep, and you can have friends, but you are going to fail, okay? 
You can sleep and have good grades, but bye-bye friends, okay? At the top of this triangle, let's put the word good. G-O-O-D, good. God is good. This is a proclamation. This is something Christians have said for a long time. If you're ever in a worship setting, you don't know what to do and you don't know what to say and you're feeling awkward and everyone's like saying something, you could be like, God is good, <laughs> okay? You can just say it. It works, it works every time. It seems fundamentally true. Here's another thing Christians believe about God fundamentally, that it's true. I'm just going to use the word power to denote this one. Power. God is all-powerful. God is omnipotent. In the church I was in yesterday, we sang a hymn called God the Omnipotent. Okay? God can do anything. There's nothing God can't do. Again, if you're stuck for sayings in a Christian setting, you can always be like, there's nothing God can't do. You know, you can always just say that. That's true. God is good. God can do anything. We work with these assumptions as Christians, as people of faith, and it seems reasonable. You could already start to detect some problems here, though. Maybe if you're, if you're one of these critical types, like you're a scholar in the making, you could say, well, okay, God is good. What, is, what does good actually mean? That's kind of a weird word, good. This is good, that's good. Candy is good, God is good. Like, do we want to, you know, is that, is that an appropriate word? And what about power, the idea of omnipotence? And you could even drag into it all kinds of other concepts, like omniscience, God knows everything, can do everything. But you could get into brain teasers, admittedly. Like, you know, like, can God make a rock bigger than God can lift? If he's God, he should be able to make that rock bigger than he can lift. But if he's God, he should be able to lift that rock. Ah! You know, like, so can God do things that are logically impossible? If he's, if he's God and he can do anything, he should actually be able to do anything. Does anything not mean anything? Like, what does anything even mean? Okay, so you could already get kind of into trouble here with these two, but these are bedrock assumptions. God is good. God is all-powerful. Those seem to work okay together for most people, but there's a problem in the lower right-hand corner. It's this word, it's this word, evil. The idea that there are some things in this world that are just so horrific. Innocent suffering, the death of children. You gotta get dark on this one. You can't just be like, oh, I know, why am I sick sometimes? Oh, God is not good, ah. You know, we're not talking about that, okay? We're not talking about that, that level of stuff. We're talking about serious stuff. We're talking about watching your life ripped away. We're talking about nuclear warfare. We're talking about the death of children. We're talking about natural disasters that can't just so easily be swiped, swiped away by saying, well, you know, people have free will. We choose our, you know, really? Did my, daughter, did my daughter and I choose that moment in which she was about to die? Is that my free will that, you know? So you gotta get ugly with this, okay? You gotta get ugly in order for it to work. Now, what's the problem here then? What's the sort of, what's the perceived problem at least? If God is totally good and also totally powerful, why the heck is this going on? Why is it still going on? Why was it ever allowed to go on even a little bit? Yeah, God wants us to learn. He's a father. We're the children. I get it. But at some point, you know, you say enough is enough. If I'm watching my daughters play near the street and they've got a ball and it's going out in the street and I'm like, stop doing this. Stop putting the ball out. There are cars coming and they just keep disobeying me. Am I as a parent, you know, and I'm probably a pretty bad parent. Do you think if I see, a, you know, the fifth time they do this, the ball's going out in the street, there's a semi coming and I'm like, they're running out toward it and I'm like, should I rescue them? You know, you've got to learn some hard lessons in life, you know. So, am I a better parent than God? Because in my first house that I lived in here, uh, a two-year-old child died in an exact scenario just like that, but not, not supervised, was pushed out in a stroller right in front of a car, it was nobody's fault. 
It certainly wasn't the child's fault. I remember my family like trying to go over to this family and console them. We didn't even speak the same language. It was just a disaster. Am I a better parent than God? What's happening here? Okay, 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 okay. Maybe God is good and this kind of stuff does exist, but maybe God is limited in some way. Maybe he's not all-powerful. Okay, that feels dangerous theologically. Seems a little weird. Maybe God is self-limited in some way. I, you know, maybe he, maybe he wants to stop it but can't for some reason. Harder yet, maybe God is all-powerful. Maybe this is really, really real and really a problem. Maybe God's not good. Maybe he's like, yeah, I could stop it, but I don't want to because, you know, I, kinda, I like this sort of thing. I'm not what you would call good. Okay. Round and round we could go. What do we do when, 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 when faced with something like this? Sometimes, by the way, and I'll try to write this word big enough that, that you can see it, sometimes people call this problem, this philosophical, theological problem, they call it by this word, theodicy. Like C-O, like our class, and then D-I-C-Y, theodicy. It's a word that has two words in it, theos and DK, God and justice. So a theodicy is an explanation for, of God's justice in light of apparent problems that would challenge that in the world. Quick things about this theodicy problem. Number one, there's no easy way out of this. And if you think there is, you may not have thought long enough about this. We need wisdom and maturity and time to think about suffering as Christians. We don't need slogans or flippant comments. You might ha- this might be one of those things, people, like you might have to let this burn for a while, and that's okay. Number two, people have lost faith over this problem. But number three, people have also gained faith over this problem. We know this about suffering. Suffering will change us. And an encounter with suffering or evil will always change us. I actually came to faith, long story, can't tell it here, during a time of of suffering or at least mental anguish, in which problems like this actually brought me into faith. But still, it's dangerous. They can also drive us away, these kind of hard problems. And we can't think that just by not talking about it, it'll suddenly go away. And I know it's already on your mind, certainly on the mind of the commenter that made the question, right? What do we do in the face of a problem like this? Wallow in despair? Give up? No way. No, we're not giving up. We're not going to wallow in despair. If you're a thinking person, which you are, and you're into deep theology and philosophy, there are solutions. I want to offer a roll call of ways that Christians have thought about solutions to this theodicy problem, ways to think about suffering. I've got funny little nicknames with each of the problems to help you remember them, okay? And then I'll, I'll say what I think the basic approach is, and then I'll say what I think are its pros and its cons. Does that make sense? So there are several of these, okay? Um, These are just sketches, little snapshots to get us thinking. And also, some of these approaches overlap. They're not mutually exclusive, although some are, and I don't deny combo solutions or all the above solutions or anything like that. Is someone gonna sit in this chair? What is this chair doing here? Should I sit in the chair? I don't know, okay. How about the first one? I'm gonna call it crime and punishment. Crime and punishment, baby. Do the crime. You do the time. This one's kind of like it sounds. People suffer because of things that they do. And I want to tell you one big advantage to this solution is that it is a deeply, deeply biblical solution to be found in many places in the Bible. One of those places is a book you're going to be reading from this week called the book of Proverbs. We're asking you to read the first 10 chapters. Let me read you two statements from Proverbs that I think illustrate this, this solution really, really nicely. Proverbs 10, 3 to 4, the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. 
And then also Proverbs 26, 27. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. That's a good one. And a stone will come back on the one who starts it rolling. In other words, you cause your own suffering. You dig a pit, well, why'd you fall into a pit? Because you dug a pit. What are the pros of this one? Well, it's simple. It's very direct. It has a lot of explanatory power. And frankly, I don't know, for me, the older I get, the more I have to get in touch with how I do actually cause a lot of my own suffering, right? Instead of this approach to the world, which is always like, blame other people, blame other people. Ah, ah, I'm suffering. It's your fault, your fault. Sometimes I have to look at myself and be like, you know, I did this. It's bracing. What about the drawbacks, though? Is it always true, though? Do you, think you could, do you think you could confront every family in poverty with that proverb, chapter 10, and say, a slack hand causes poverty? In other words, you're in, you're in poverty because you're lazy? I grew up in a family that was on food stamps for a little while um, with parents that couldn't pay rent. Were they, was, was it because they were lazy? My parents were definitely not lazy. They were both working their hands to the bone. That's a tough one, right? So we might have to think about, like, okay, is this, is this always true? Could I just trot this out as a totalizing explanation? Number two, I'm going to call this one Free Willy, like that movie, you know, where the whale jumps over a 200-foot wall, okay? Free Willy, free will solutions. We have free will. Many major early Christian thinkers embraced this idea. The world was created perfect, but people chose sin, their own free will. Why do we suffer? Suffering is, in a sense, the price that we have to pay in order to be free, in order, to God, in order for God to have agents in the world that can truly worship him as free autonomous beings, maybe not quite autonomous, but as free beings, let's say, and not just have robots. Evil, in this, in this view, is, this is deceptive, the triangle. Ah, the triangle deceives. For evil, in this view, maybe isn't even a real thing, in a sense. As one early Christian thinker, Augustine, put it, I'm simplifying quite a bit, in a famous passage from his City of God, evil isn't even real. You can try to talk about it, but it's like you almost just have to go to silence because it doesn't exist. Evil's not like some horrible tumor inside your body that you remove. It's maybe more like, in, the, in this analogy, like a headache. Like it's an interaction of things that happen. You can't extract the headache necessarily. It doesn't even exist. We act in bad ways. We're the ones. Like, I create evil when I, you know, I create suffering when I do certain kinds of things. Um, the pros, I mean, free will seems really important for thinking about suffering, provided that you actually think people have free will, which also leads to one of the cons, which is, is the free will that this position claims we have only apparent? Like, it feels to you like you have free will, but you actually don't, and it's an illusion? So that's tough. I can't solve that one right now. Um, this one, though, for pros... Um, it, it, you know, the same pros as the crime and punishment model. If God didn't create evil, we did, then evil doesn't have to ex exist eternally. It's not like a dualism, like a yin and a yang, like evil's always going to be there. No, God is actually going to eradicate it, okay? Satan is not like this in the Christian tradition, not this eternal thing, like, it's God and Satan in a battle for eternity. Like, that's not a thing. And Satan existed since the beginning of time, and so did God, and they were always in conflict. That is not a Christian view. Okay, like Christian, Christians tried to stamp out that view, eradicate that view early on. That's not, that's not a Christian view. These things will end. The cons, I brought one of them up. I mean, do people actually have free will? Does God still have foreknowledge and total power in this system? If so, if God foreknows that you're going to do something, is God free to foreknow that you're going to do something else, maybe? And if not, does that mean that free will is actually illusory? I don't know, that problem's a little above me. I'm not sure how to exactly solve that. Okay. So you have to invoke principles like original sin in order to explain why everything has gone wrong. Could actually feel evasive in some ways.
Ooh, how about this one? Eat your vegetables. Eat your vegetables. This is a theodicy solution. Suffering in this view is actually good for you. This problem is not, you know, don't stigmatize this problem down here. We get stronger through suffering. And in fact, maybe we can't even really even be hurt by this problem ultimately. One of the great heroes of this movement, the philosopher Socrates, you maybe have heard the name Socrates before in your studies, in his trial, in a, in a, in a work by Plato called The Apology, he says he's about to be executed unjustly, kind of like Jesus in a way, he's kind of a parallel. He's, he didn't do anything wrong, but he's about to be executed. And he looks out at the crowd and says, oh, oh, you think you're going to harm me? You think you're doing something bad to me? Oh, ha, ha nope. You actually cannot harm a righteous person. It's, if you harm me and I'm righteous, you're harming yourself. You're the one getting harmed. It's you. It's not me, right? Sometimes this line of thinking is associated with a certain uh, kind of philosophy called Stoic philosophy, S-T-O-I-C, the Stoics. You lost a child, one of the Stoics writes. Don't think of it as a loss. Think that you just gave it back. It was never yours to begin with. Or many of the Stoics use the example of a movie. Think about characters in a movie that are like the horrible, mean villain characters. You need those characters, actually, in the movie, in the play, in order so that the good, righteous characters can emerge triumphant, so that they can do what they need to do. Suffering's not all so bad. That's just the world. Now, pros, if you can pull that off, this one's really strong. Evil and suffering serve a purpose, to make us strong, to help us grow. Suffering is accepted, and who's in control? God. And you're in the position to make, make it work in your life and to grow and be strong. Cons, well, it seems to deny that evil is real and that real harm actually do occur in the world. I mean, do you agree with that statement just on its face? You can't actually harm a righteous person? Would you be willing to say that? Or, in fact, is it the case that we need to acknowledge that harm and evil are real in order to, in order to protect innocent people? Otherwise, why shouldn't just crime and suffering run amok? Maybe we should be encouraging it in this view, Okay. So some might suspect that the eat your veggies solution sounds really good when you're feeling good and we're all sitting in here and we're all safe and sound, but it falls apart completely when your own child dies. How about this one? Suffering is totally meaningless. I'm going to go a little faster through these for time. Suffering's meaningless. You just got to go about your life. You're not going to know why people suffer. You're not going to know why you suffer, and God will judge you. Good luck with that. Now, that doesn't sound like a Christian solution, does it? It is, however, the key message of an entire biblical book, <laughs> parts of which you're going to read this week, called Ecclesiastes. Try, I'm so excited for you to read parts of Ecclesiastes. How can there be any pros to that? It's total atheism. No, not exactly. Ecclesiastes says, eat and drink and enjoy, enjoy that wonderful, beautiful life you have as a young person, because it ain't coming back. <laughs> so... Be happy and get into it and do your best in an uncertain world. I mean, there's something that does make emotional sense about that, to me at least. Cons, okay, the book of Ecclesiastes isn't the entire Bible, though, right? Like, it's one piece of the puzzle, and maybe like that first solution, crime and punishment, we don't want to totalize it. What about mystery? Our next solution, let's call it mystery. You look at this, you could think about this for the rest of your life and just go round and round. A medieval mystic thinker named Julian of Norwich she wrote about this. She wrote about all this stuff, and she, she wrote about it, and she just kept coming back to this phrase. She said, I did this, and I asked God, what is wrong with the world? And God told me, all is well, and all manner of things shall be well. She just keeps repeating this. How can that be true, though, she says. All shall be well, and it's a mystery. 
In some ways, another piece of a book we're asking you to read this week, the book of Job, I think offers something of a solution that's kind of like this. A man who's totally innocent and who's totally righteous suffers completely unjust suffering, or it appears to be. God definitely seems powerful. Is God good, though, in this system? Like, why would God allow something like that to happen to a guy? And you can read in the book about how that happens. And in the end, God comes with this amazing, wild speech, which maybe seems to suggest in the end that the world is a mysterious, wild place in which wild animals live out in the desert, having babies and getting killed and all kinds of crazy stuff is happening. Birds are lapping up blood, and there's a giant leviathan in the ocean, and you just don't get it. And that's life. And it's beautiful, and God's like, what? This is my world. You don't like my world? This is my world, okay? Mystery. One more of these I'll say for now, and then I'll conclude. How about, I'm calling this one, let's fight. (laughs) Let's fight, okay? Fight me. The way we deal with evil is to resist it, to acknowledge its reality, and fight against it. This is a very anti-Stoic idea. This is anti-eat your vegetables, okay? You definitely can harm righteous people. And because this is true, we have to work for justice and put evil in its place. The biblical lament tradition in Job chapter 3, you'll read a lament, a bitter cry of pain, suggests that in fact we really do suffer and we really do have a God to call on to make things right. And in this tradition, I mean Psalm 44, this is just side, just for free, not part of the lecture, Psalm 44 is an amazing psalm to read on this front. There the psalmist says, God, I am righteous, I am suffering, this is happening, And the psalmist dares to say to God, can you imagine praying like this? The psalmist says, hey God, wake up. Wake up. Maybe you're you're struggling with the power thing, God. Let's get it it moving, okay? The lament tradition thus encourages action and calls God into action. Let's fight. We can do something about this. Pros, I mean, the justice tradition, motivation for action, it puts us in an active stance and encourages solidarity with those who suffer. And this lament tradition is huge in the Bible, by the way. As Christians, though, we don't want to let ourselves get, and I think this is a con to the approach, disconnected from the theological core, the spiritual core for why we lament and why we call for justice. Just trying to right wrongs in the world gets confusing, and you could find yourself in the midst of all kinds of super self-righteous crusades for which you're not even sure if you're on the right side or not. Evil's always out there, you know, it's never inside of me. What hope do we have? I know it leaves us swirling with all kinds of thoughts. I want you to be swirling with all kinds of thoughts as we go into this week about how, how can God be righteous in the midst of all this? How can Jesus have suffered at the hands of unjust pagan rulers when Jesus did nothing wrong and they did? We're all, we're all going to suffer. We're going to die. And we're going to watch and experience things that we never thought we would. What comfort do we have? Well, here's a comfort. We have scripture. And scripture is going to go there with every dark and deep topic. One, I understand so many critiques of Christianity. They all make a lot of sense. Here's one I don't understand, though. I don't understand the critique of faith that says, eh, faith, it's just all about pie in the sky, just solutions to your problems. You think you can escape into heavens? That ain't my experience with faith. Indeed, this, this dilemma, this trilemma with these three points is actually caused by the assumption that there is a God and that there is a good God and that that God actually is powerful. Acknowledging those things actually gets you into trouble, Right? And getting on board with God in your life is not going to redeem you from suffering or take it away. It's going to put you in the thick of things. You want to go with God, you're getting in trouble. (laughs) Like right away. We're in trouble with this. So I don't understand that critique. We have scripture and scripture is full of stuff like this. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, the Gospels, and so much more. We also have Jesus, by the way. 
We have Jesus. I've thought a lot lately about thinking of Jesus as a kind of pioneer. Maybe it's just living on the West Coast, you know, an explorer. Or almost like an astronaut. I know that's a weird image for Jesus. To think of Jesus as an astronaut, but like someone who's gone out into a very strange place, has gone out before us and has explored and knows who we are and what we've been through. Whatever disagreements we might have about ultimately how to solve this theodicy problem, or if it even needs solving, we stand on solid ground to say, you know, just some simple things like, God is not evil. God does not create evil to hurt us in unredemptive ways. I think all Christians agree on that. God will eradicate all suffering and death. That's the end of the story, the book of Revelation. We're getting there. God must be trusted in times of pain and death. God can and will take any suffering you experience in your life, no matter how horrible, and make it right and use it to teach us, even if not in this lifetime, and even if that stretches us into areas of challenge and confusion and disorientation. To feel challenged and to feel confused and to feel disoriented with faith in life is not anti-faith. It is a journey into faith. Suffering can be a journey like this too. Through Jesus and in a relationship to us now, God is involved in the suffering of the world. He's not disconnected and distant. He's right here. He's right here. We want to know so many things. I think about this all the time. For some things, though, we're just going to wait. As we wait, though, Christians, especially, we must never forget these important words in the creed that Jesus suffered. All right, that's all. Thank you, Dr. Doak.